Morning, welcome. Welcome to church this morning. As was mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series today. And uh, personally, uh, I'm really excited about this one. I've heard from others that are interested in, in seeing where we go over the next four weeks. <clears throat> As we look at what is a familiar story to many people, uh, the story of Jonah. Now, I think part of the reason Jonah is so well known is not so much because of Jonah, more so because of a big fish that's there. And we're going to get there, actually, next week. We're going to talk more about that. But if you haven't heard the story of Jonah before, if, if, uh, if you've come to the church as an adult, perhaps haven't heard some of these stories that others have seen in the past, you are in for a treat. This is a classic story that we find in Scripture. And while we may know a fair bit about the fish in the story, we actually don't often know a whole lot about Jonah himself. He's sort of known for these four books in the deeper parts of the Old Testament Bible, but we don't often know too much about him as a person. Well, did you know that Jonah um, was actually a prophet for 50 years he served as a prophet of God. From, from around the year 800 to 750 BC, he was a prophet. It was during a time of the prophets. You see, what's happening around the situation of the st- telling of the story is Israel has been going through a time where their territories have been gradually shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because other people are attacking them and taking over land and territory. And one of the main powers in the region at the time is a place called Damascus. Well, while they're being shrunken by Damascus, another nation by the name of Assyria comes in and actually attacks and defeats Damascus. And this leads to opportunity. Because now the great enemy of Damascus is being weakened and defeated. And so there's this time where King Jehoash goes to see a prophet. Remember, it's the time of prophets. So Jehoash goes to see the prophet Elisha. And says, is this the time? Is this when we should start pushing back and start fighting back and reclaim our territory? And and Elisha tells him that absolutely it is, that God is with them, that now is the time to go on the offensive. And so he does. But he does so kind of half-heartedly and in a little bit of a protectionist way of, of pushing forward in the border. So he doesn't finish the job. In fact, his son, the uh, King Jeroboam II, comes to power, and he has to go see a prophet as well. And guess what prophet he went to go inquire of? Jonah. Jonah's name actually shows up in places other than just the book of Jonah. He goes to inquire of Jonah to say, should I keep pushing? Should I finish the job that my father started? And sure enough, the time is to push forward, to reclaim the old boundaries that they always had. And Israel comes into a time of relative peace. And what does Israel always do when they enter into a time of relative peace? Well, they tend to become a little complacent in their relationship with God. And sure enough, that is what happens again. They reclaim their old boundaries um, and, and they start to pull back from their relationship with God again. You can read about these things in, in 2 Kings chapters 13 and 14. And without this foreign pressure... Complacency slips in. So again, time of prophets. God sends more prophets to them. He sends first the good cop shows up. Hosea comes to them during this time as well. All these people we read out in the Bible, where do they fit into history? Well, it's all part of the same season, same story. God sends the prophet Hosea to come in. And Hosea comes to remind them of God's love of God's forgiveness, of his mercy. He calls them to say, come back to me. Even though you've been wayward, even though you've wandered from me, I want to call you back to me. But they don't. And so God says, okay, the good cop didn't work. I'll send in the bad cop. So he sends another prophet. He sends in the prophet Amos this time, who comes back with a warning. 
just saying, if you don't come back to me, I will judge you guilty of your unfaithfulness. I will judge you guilty of your disobedience. And if that doesn't work, if that warning doesn't work, I will send you into exile. And where do you think they're going to be sent into exile? Well, into Assyria, who is now the powerhouse in the region. And they were known for their brutality. Assyria was, were, were not no, just known for their power. They were known for being a wicked, brutal people. You see, there were stories that ran throughout the region of, of just how mean and nasty they were when they would go to war with other nations and just they would, they would be vicious in how they treated and tortured and killed people and they would, they would plunder them, just rapidly plunder all the towns and the people and the nations that they would take over. They were known for this brutality. At the same time, there was widespread prostitution and, and witchcraft that took place throughout Assyria. And, and worst of all, as bad as all that is, they are also known for commercial exploitation. That's right. They had bad business practices and, and how Assyria conducted business as well. Assyria is kind of like, like Mordor, any of the Lord of the Rings fans. It, it's this dark place that you don't want to go by choice. But Assyria had a capital city. What do you think the name of the capital city was? It's Nineveh. The name of the capital city that Israel was being threatened to be sent into their enemy territory and exile during this time of the prophets. The name of the capital city of that land was Nineveh. And God had a message for Nineveh during this time. And so he calls upon one of his most faithful one of his most long serving veteran prophets, a prophet who has served him for 50 years. He calls upon Jonah. I got a big plan. I got a big message. I need a guy who can handle the job. So he calls upon Jonah to go deliver the message. And we read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to this great city, this great wicked evil city of Nineveh, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. You see, when, when God sends a prophet with a message like this, it's a warning, but it's also a warning that comes with a sense of future hope. And Jonah was called to go preach against Nineveh. He was pretty good with that, to go preach against them. But, but here's the thing. It wasn't just to go preach against them. It was also to call them to repentance, to say, hey, guys, if you listen to the warning, you can also experience God's mercy. And that was tough for Jonah. That was a tough message for him. Like us, he lived in a world of cause and effect. And we're very familiar with this idea of cause and effect in the world around us. If I never brush my teeth, that will be the cause of the effect of me having five cavities. If, if I smoke cigarettes, that will be the cause of me eventually developing the effect of lung cancer. Well, in Jonah's world, Assyria was brutal, wicked, evil people, which was the cause of them deserving God's punishment, not his mercy. Why would this be the message? So, what Jonah could not accept was the fact that there is no person, no matter how evil, that cannot be affected by God. See, we sometimes get these words mixed up. This word affect and effect, we see this in English language. And very, very basically put, effect is referred to the result of a cause, the end result of a cause. But affect is an impact that can lead to change. 
such as when a person encounters God's love and forgiveness, that can have an effect upon them that leads them to change, cause, and effect. And one of God's greatest causes throughout time, throughout Scripture, is his desire to reconcile all people unto himself. And that's good news. That is good news for all of us because no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how many sins you may have committed, no matter how far you think you may have run from God, I can promise you this, and we will see this in the story of Jonah, that his love and that his mercy is greater. And he will allow all to come to him and be affected leading to new life. So God's cause had an effect upon Jonah but not the one that God was hoping for. We read in verse 3 that the effect was that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed towards Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The thought of God being shared with the Ninevites was offensive to Jonah. So he seeks to escape this divine mission. What is his strategy? His strategy is to run. If I run as far as possible from God, maybe he won't be able to find me or I'll be ineffective if I run far enough. And so he finds himself in Joppa, and he has this choice. He can go to Nineveh to the east, which is like 450 miles to the east, one of the most eastern places in the known world, or he can run 2,500 miles to the west to the most furthest point of what is northern Spain today. And this is his thought. I can run from God and I can escape him. And we might snicker at at the foolishness of what Jonah's trying to do, but I think actually his running from God in this fashion can be seen as an analogy for each of us in how people respond to God in this world and in this day. Think about a situation perhaps you've experienced or or somebody who shared their story with you where where God convicted them of perhaps a, a habit that they had. But instead of submitting to God's will, instead of allowing God to bring freedom in their life, what do they do? They retreat. They retreat from that. I don't want to give that up, or that would be too hard to give that up, so I'll retreat from, from praying. If I don't pray as often, I won't hear the conviction. I won't have to hear that voice in my head. I won't, I won't read my Bible as often, because if I, if I don't read my Bible as often, I won't feel the, the sense of direct, redirecting in my life. I, I may not attend church as often as I used to, because people know what I'm wrestling with. They know what God has called me to give up, and I haven't given it up, and I just can't face that. We retreat. We can run at times. Or perhaps when God convicts somebody of a decision that they've made. Rather than heed the counsel that he gives them, perhaps through other godly people in their lives, what happens? Quite often we say, no, I'm just going to prove I made the right choice. Anyone here ever find themselves in a bad relationship at some point? Where people around you are saying, that's not, that, that's not the right person for you. And, you know, that, that's not somebody you want to necessarily invest in for the long term. They're, they're detrimental to you. And what is a person's response so often? No, I can change him. I'm going to prove that I'm right. Forms of running from God. But see, what Jonah had forgotten, and what we do not always realize, is that God is tenacious in his causes. And while he may not make you do anything, he's also not willing to allow you to forget that he has a better plan for your life. So Jonah charters this boat in an effort to run away from God, but instead of running away from God, he actually ends up running right into God. Verse 4 through 5. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they, they had thrown the cargo over the sea when that didn't work to try and lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This crew that Jonah has hired are experienced sailors. They know how to handle themselves upon the seas, but they are terrified. They're scared for their lives. The sailors had turned to all they know. They had turned to their skill upon the seas. We can just navigate the boat through this, this storm. When that didn't work, they fell to their knees and cried out to their gods. And when that didn't work, they decided to throw their cargo overboard. This is their livelihood. This is when they get to port in Tarshish, they're going to have to explain why all their goods are gone. Where's the silver? Where's the lead? Where, where's all the supplies you were supposed to drop off for me? And they reach this point of saying, we are willing to give up our livelihood because if we don't, we may not have lives. And so it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. You can almost hear the waves crashing against the boat during the storm as you read it. You can almost hear the wind howling through the sails. You can hear the captain shouting and barking orders on how to keep the ship upright. You can, you can hear the deck boards cracking as the pressure of the waves push against it. You can almost hear Jonah, snore, Jonah snoring through all of it. All hands on deck, and Jonah is below deck. Sleeping. Sleeping down there. You know, the story, we're only four verses in. But the story already shows Jonah is on this downward descent. The further he runs from God, the further down he ends up going. We can see that as, as, as the story says, he went down to Joppa. When he got there, he went down to the port. When he got to the port, he, he hired a boat. And when he got on the boat, he went down below deck. And when he went below deck, he fell down into a deep sleep. All symbolic of the path that he has chosen, that he is going down, 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 closer and closer to the grave. Maybe not literally, but certainly symbolically of his relationship with God of his calling, of his past faithfulness as a prophet of God for all these years. And God is after Jonah, though. And he used the storm to rouse him to attention. He even uses the pagan captain to rouse him to attention. In verse 6, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Maybe he will take notice and we will not all perish. Get up. Don't you see the immediate need at hand? Get up and help us and maybe we won't all die. But at the same time, I think he's also saying, get up, move back towards God. Change the trajectory of the path that your life is currently on. You see, if you are running from God, if you find yourself in a situation today where if you're honest with yourself, you are running from God in some fashion, do not be surprised if he throws a storm at the very thing you're running to. Do not be surprised if he throws a storm your way. I've heard so many stories over the years of being a pastor, of those who are are chasing after their own plans and their own desires. But it's just this constant struggle. There's this constant frustration. There's never any peace, any sense that they're going in the right trajectory. It's like they're walking in the fog and the fog never lifts. I hear people being in relationships that are not honoring to God where where they're not, as the scripture says, equally yoked. 
And this is causing tension in their lives, especially tension in other relationships in their lives that are healthy, as they're being more and more further and further dragged away from godly choices and decisions in their lives. I've counseled numerous people who have turned to vices during difficult times, whether it be drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it may be. These things that at one time would pacify the tension and the challenges in their lives, but now holds them in bondage. You see, the struggles that we endure in life sometimes are often God's storm trying to call us to return to him. It is one way that God gets our attention, pointing out the fact that we are not living according to his will. That is why we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5.14, it says, This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. You see, when we run, when we slip downward away from God, the good news is we are never more than one step from returning back to him. We are never more than one step of rising up from our waywardness and letting the grace and the mercy of Jesus shine upon us once again. But even in Jonah's disobedience, God still pursues him because of his love for all people. No matter their sin, no matter the level of their waywardness and the rejection of him, he continues to pursue because God is tenacious in his cause. So these sailors have exhausted all that they can do on their own. They, they've, they've tried their own knowledge of the seas. They've cried out to their gods. They've thrown their livelihood overboard, and it's not working. So they seek to determine what is the cause of this effect that they're experiencing. And in verse 7 we read, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Now, casting lots is a common act of divination, where through a practice, a game of chance, if you will, they allow God to speak, allow God to make his will or reveal knowledge to them that otherwise they wouldn't have access to. And this isn't just a pagan practice. Actually, we see this happening throughout the Old Testament in particular. We see it in the book of Joshua and in 1 Samuel and the book of Proverbs. And typically what would happen is they'd take a bunch of sticks and they would either have one short or they'd mark one stick and then everyone would draw a stick. And if you drew the, the short straw, then you were the person. Or they would take a bunch of marbles or pebbles and they would mark one, put them in a bag, you'd all draw. And then whoever drew the marked one was the person God had marked as being responsible or the person he had marked for a particular calling. Well, no surprise, the lot falls to Jonah as they go through this. And so they begin to question him. They ask him questions like, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What are the people? What people are you from? And Jonah faces a moment of decision. He's been running from God this whole time, and he knows that's the reason for the storm. So does he keep up the ruse? I don't know. It's sure is a good storm, though. I, phew, no idea what's going on, guys. This is crazy. Or does he lean towards truth and own it? Well, in this case, he leans towards truth. He answers them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? For they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. 
You see, the sailors understand that Jonah is declaring that he serves the highest divinity. He is serving a God that is over all of their gods. And they couldn't argue with this because they had called out to their gods and nothing happened. So if Jonah's God is the cause of the storm and their gods are powerless to do anything about it, Jonah's God is the most powerful God. But here's the thing about Jonah's statement. He actually proves in these words that he is well aware of what he's doing. He's aware of who God is, of God's calling upon people's lives. He says here first, he says, I am a Hebrew. And he's not talking about being a barista at Starbucks. Hebrews. I thought it was funnier than that. Thank you. He's not talking about being a barista. He's talking about being a member of God's family, chosen people in this case. He declares God to be the creator of, of, of all it is, of declaring God's eternal power and sovereignty over all creation. And the sailors accept this answer because the power and authority of God, of Jonah's God, is undeniable from the very moment, the situation they find themselves in. Yet here's the challenge. His actions are completely contrary to his words. And so they're confounded by this. They've heard the words of Jonah. They've also seen the actions of Jonah. They're confounded by this because they're thinking, if you know this God, if what you say about this God is true, why would you try and run? It's actually more of a statement than a question that they ask him. What have you done is more of a what have you done to us? Also known as how could you be so dumb as to try to run from the maker of the sea on a boat. And we can agree just how ludicrous Jonah's actions are, how, how ludicrous his decisions are up to this point. And yet, as I read this, I know that I am guilty of the exact same thing. See, you could come up to me and ask me a question about God. What is God like? What, what does God want for my life? And I'll probably be able to formulate a, a truthful, accurate, scripturally true answer for you. And there'll be things that I know and that I honestly, genuinely believe. But if you were then to follow me around 24-7 for a while, it wouldn't take that long before my actions and my attitudes somehow violate what I've shared with you. Sometimes innocently. Sometimes it, it just happens and I stumble into those moments and, and I, I, I don't mean to and it's unintentional and yet I do. But to be honest, there's other times when it's willful. I think that's common for all of us. We can probably all think of situations where something comes up, a temptation raises up in our lives and we start that internal debate in our minds. Can we all think of one? I'm sure I'm not alone on this. Here's the thing about that internal debate. The fact you're having that internal debate already proves you know it's wrong. And yet, even though we're having this debate inside, we think, well, well just once. Just, just one look, no one will see. Just one time, I won't let it become a habit. Just one more bite, I, I, I know I can control myself. Just one more, one more date with that person. I haven't crossed the line yet. Just this once. It's not like I'm hurting anybody. And yet that's the lie of our sins. You see, because we do. Jonah's sin was not a victimless crime, and neither are ours. Who are the victims of Jonah's sin? Well, we're first of all the people of Nineveh. We're victims of his running, of his running away from, from God. As, the, as we'd read in the book of Romans later, it says, 
How can people call upon his name if they never hear his name? And how will they ever hear his name unless somebody goes and preaches to them? Jonah was called to preach to them, and yet they were not going to hear the name of God. The sailors were victims of Jonah's sin because they found themselves completely dragged into this mess now. Their lives are hanging in the balance because of Jonah's sin. And if they weren't affected, Jonah's affected. He's on this downward, downward path away from God. It's putting this wedge between him and God. The connection he has known for so many years, the faithful prophet of God, is being severed as he goes down, 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 further and further away from God. You see, in the same matter, our sin not only hurts us, but our sin causes collateral damage to people around us which is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and allow Christ to shine upon you. See, for Jonah and the sailors, they're in this dire situation. Jonah knows he's wrong. He's admitted it, but he hasn't confessed it. But he does also resign himself to his fate, which is absolutely unfortunate. Because as the seas get rougher, as God demands for attention, the sailors ask Jonah, what should we do? Jonah could have said, let's all pray. Let's fall to our knees and confess this. And and I'll go first, guys, because that's all me. I'll acknowledge my wrong ways. I'll acknowledge that I've sinned against God, and maybe that'll calm the storms. He didn't say that. Instead, in verse 12, he says, pick me up. And throw me into the seas, he replies, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. See, Jonah knows that if he claims innocence, they're all going to die. And yet if he admits he's the cause, then perhaps he alone will die. He feels like the situation has been reduced to a decision of, if my life is not going to save others, perhaps my death will save some. But this puts the sailors between a rock and a hard place because they don't really want to murder this guy. But they don't want to be in the storm and die in the storm either. So in verse 13, instead, the men did their very best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. The sailors aren't willing to take his life. So they try to outmuscle God instead. We're just going to row back to shore. If we row back to shore, we'll all survive. Do you notice the irony in this? See, Jonah wasn't willing to save the pagan Ninevites. And yet here we have these pagan sailors seeking to save Jonah in this moment. One is reflecting more of God's will and character than the other. And it's kind of ironic who that is. But the more they struggle against God, the bigger the storm gets. They realize you can't resist the will of God. And so unlike Jonah, the sailors surrender to God's inescapable power in their lives. And they cry out to him, don't hold us responsible for what we're about to do. Don't hold us responsible for killing your prophet. You think that's a pretty serious offense to kill one of God's prophets. But they say, Lord, this isn't our will. This isn't what we want to do. We're trying to get back to shore. We're trying to do it our way. But we understand, Lord, that we need to do it your way. 
This is your will, not ours. And I can imagine these sailors grabbing Jonah, two at his feet, two at his hand, and they've got him, and they start swinging him. One, two, do we let go on three or three, and then let go? But they let go, and, and he flies over the edge, and as he crashes into the waves, as they release him, they think, what have we done? But the storm ceases. Now, centuries later, when Jesus' disciples were in a boat with him during a storm, Jesus stood and said, quiet, be still. And I think these sailors and Jesus' disciples all sat in amazement as they looked at each other and asked, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. See, God's cause had an effect upon their lives. Because we read also in verse 16. That this, the men, the sailors, greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. You see, even in Jonah's disobedience, God causes the reconcile of people unto himself. That's his great cause. It's to reconcile people unto himself. And even in the face of Jonah's disobedience, God is committed to it. Cause and effect. God's pursuit of all of them led to the intended effect. In two ways, actually. In one way, in the sailors' lives. Because the sailors become followers of Jonah's God at the end of this. When they says they offered sacrifices and vows, this idea of offering sacrifices is a public uh, expression of dependence and worship of God. And then the vows is a public expression to continue, the intention to continue in the worship of God. But we also see that God doesn't abandon Jonah even though Jonah's trying to run away from him. Because don't mistake Jonah being thrown into the sea as a confession. That is Jonah resigning himself to the fact that he needs to die. It wasn't his intention to land in the waves and swim back to shore and go to Nineveh. He thought, if I can't run and become unuseful to God, me being thrown into the sea and losing my life will make me unuseful to God because I refuse to go to Nineveh. And yet God continues to pursue him. God demonstrates his patient love, not just for Jonah, but for Nineveh as well. Because in light of both of their evils, we read in verse 17, that the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But you have to come back next week to hear more about that. In this first chapter of Jonah... We see that God's cause to reconcile all people to himself has an effect upon everyone. Upon Jonah, it caused him to run. In the sailors, it caused them to run towards God. We also see that God is tenacious in his loving pursuit of people. No matter how much a person has sinned, no matter what type of sin, no matter how much they've rejected him, God continues to chase and to pursue people to bring them back to himself. That's God's greatest cause. And so I want to invite you to keep one question in mind as we go throughout this series over the next four weeks. And the question is this. Do you have a Nineveh? Do you have a Nineveh? You see, like Jonah, I know we all know in our hearts that there's most people we'd be okay if they came to faith. That maybe we'd even be excited with the opportunity that in some situations we'd be willing to share our own faith or to be God's agent of bringing them to him. We could even get, get excited if they came and became part of our church friends, if we shared a pew with them, if they came to our social gatherings and gathered with us. 
But also like Jonah, do we have a Nineveh? Is there a type of person, perhaps a certain background or lifestyle and an identity or a habit, a way they look, act, or talk, that when you encounter them in the world, you feel the sense of disdain inside, a desire to want to avoid that person, move away from, not towards that person. You may even label them as an enemy, and perhaps with good reason. Perhaps with good reason because when you look at their life, everything about their life mocks your values. Everything about them offends your beliefs. They threaten your security. But if God called you to share his good news with them, the fact that Jesus gave his life to pay the price for their sins, would you be able to do it? Let's make it even simpler. If God brought one of those persons and sat them beside you on a pew in our church, if, if God invited them to one of our social gatherings, how would you react? We'll make it even simpler. If they live next door to you, if they were in your neighborhood, would you be willing to invite them to the Christmas banquet? Would you be willing to go to them and invite them to Christmas Eve service with us? Remember, God's cause is to reconcile all people unto himself. Throughout the Bible, we see that this is the case. We, we see his tenacious pursuit of those who are far from him. The greatest example of that is seen in Jesus Christ, and that's what we remember as we come together at the communion table once a month, is that Jesus is the greatest example of chasing after those who are far from him. Because there was this time while we were all sinners, every single one of us. But that is when Christ died for us. Before we knew him, before we were ready to accept him, before we even had a need for him, Jesus climbed upon the cross and paid the price for your sin and for mine. Simply so that when we came to the point of acknowledging our need, we had the choice to either accept him or reject him. And that's what we celebrate at our communion table today as, as the servers come forward. You see, on this table that we see the, the bread, symbolic of his body, which was broken for us. We see also the cup, symbolic of his blood, which was poured out to cover, to cover over our sins. And, and this table is open to all. Jesus' invitation is open to all who have accepted forgiveness of those sins through this means. If you have never made that choice, that decision, but there's something inside of you today that you're having an internal battle that you keep pushing away, keep pushing away. As I said a few moments ago, the fact you're having that battle is evidence there's something going on that you're rejecting. Perhaps it's time to submit yourself to that voice and to say today, thank you. Thank you for paying a price that I couldn't pay on my own, Jesus. I need you. You gave your life for me. I now give mine to you.